Tales philosophy for over a decade, as well as speaking at conferences nationally and abroad in Hong Kong, Romania, Australia, and England. He has three books, including Debating Christian Theism, Killing God, How to Respond to the Seven Most Common Objections of New Atheism, and he's also a member of the American Philosophical Association, and he leads a ministry called LogicallyFaithful.com, where there's tons of resources there, and we get to call him friend, regular member of Calvary Church, attender of Calvary Church, and he's just been instrumental and a privilege to this congregation to have. So without further ado, please welcome Calvary Church. Good morning. There's a family who bought a robot, and the purpose of the robot is to slap anyone who tells a lie. So one time over dinner, the father asked his son, Son, did you complete your homework? He wanted to play his video games, of course. Yes, father, I did. So the robot woke up, walked over, and slapped the boy. The father looked at him and said, See, when I was your age, I never lied to my father. The robot turned around and slapped the father. <laughs> Then the mother turned around and said, that's right, you should listen to this man. He is your father, you know. And the robot turned to her and slapped the mother. Ooh. Maybe you should have considered not buying that robot. The robot's about telling the truth. My goal today is to tell you the truth to the best of my ability that God has given me. My topic today is the shadow of doubt and the absurdity of certainty. The shadow of doubt and the absurdity of certainty. In 1877, Oxford mathematician and philosopher William K. Clifford wrote an essay called The Ethics of Belief. I actually have a clip of it on my office door. It is a fascinating essay. In it, he starts with a story about a man who owned a ship. And he'd used this ship to transfer immigrants from one point of Europe to the other. After many years of this, he noticed the boat started leaking and creaking and being not very steady and safe. But Clifford said the man trusted Providence to get all these immigrants across Europe. He didn't check the boards. He didn't hire investigators. He didn't check the structure and engineering of the ship if it was properly set up at this time. He just trusted it to go. Clifford says that ship went off into the Atlantic and sunk. Hundreds of people died, and that man got his insurance money. Clifford said that this man's life is one long sin against mankind. The kind of person who believes anything that is said to them because it's persuasively given. The kind of person who just trusts without investigating. That is very dangerous, Clifford says, especially in the realm of religion. What is the boat of your life? The structure that you have set sail on? Have you checked its boards? Have you verified its veracity? Have you checked the archaeological records and the manuscript evidence that is given for this boat? The book I'm talking about the Bible, if that's your faith. We need to investigate that because healthy doubt leads to genuine faith. Whereas unrelinked skepticism and People who just believe whatever is given to them, gullibility, are susceptible to cults. They're susceptible to anybody who would step in and just take advantage of them. The text I have today is one of the most fascinating pieces of literature 
It's in John chapter 20. I checked the Bible in front of you. It should be a black one or blue one. It's on page 1,154. 1,154. It's John chapter 20. Please turn with me there. What I'll be doing today is giving you an exegesis of the passage. I always wondered when I was in college, exegesis, what do you mean Jesus? What's Jesus got to do with what's Jesus? Well, it's not really Jesus per se about it, but it is dealing with the issue of taking apart a passage word by word or passage by passage and structure by structure. And hopefully we'll do that in the time we have together. John chapter 20. So let me give you the context of that. I'm going to start at verse 24. But the context of it is, Jesus had been telling his people as a, uh, a guru or a leader or a rabbi in his community that he was a lot more than that. He was the very incarnation of God on earth, the very God, the Son. And he did it in such a way that he influenced the entire structure of the geopolitical system around him to rile up the people away from the elite at the time, which were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He angered them so much that they plotted his execution, and by divine ordained plan, they killed him, crucified him. But then, he came back, just like he said he would. And he appeared to his disciples and showed him his body. I am the same one. But at that time when he did appear to them, a few passages earlier, one of his great disciples named Thomas was not with them at the time. Maybe he fled, maybe he was hiding, maybe he was dejected, maybe he was bitter, maybe he was afraid. His leader, the one who started the movement, was not only crucified, he was humiliated and thrown into a grave, killed. He thought they would go in for him too. So the next time the disciples met, Thomas was there with them. And when he was with them, they told him what had happened. And this is where we pick up the passage. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He was not with them. You notice he's called the twin. There's a lot of interesting work in theology and whether he had a twin brother and what that actually means. Is this possibly one of the reasons Thomas didn't believe? Because anybody here who knows twins from birth knows they play really fun tricks with their friends and neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I was there. He wasn't there. It was his brother who was there. Uh, did Jesus have a twin? Was he tricky? We can't just believe anything people tell us, can we? Are you all gullible? You really want him to be there. As Sigmund Freud said, you really want to believe. So you manifest a belief system, you structure your life around it, and you believe it, and you begin to teach it to others. This is called the wish fulfillment argument, actually. Was this one of the reasons he doubted? Could it be a lot more than that? But when he was with them, the disciples told him, verse 25, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Thomas has gotten a bad rap. Thomas the Doubter, he's called. Now, being a philosophy professor, it is essential for us to question everything. And then we question the fact that we question everything and drive ourselves nuts. There's a limit to questioning. But healthy doubt is good. I have four points in this uh, short talk today. My first one is that doubt can lead to genuine faith. Doubt can lead to genuine faith. Thomas was doubting. He was not going to be gullible. He's not going to be had by the religious 
uh, charlatans of his day would do these magical trickery. My brother and I, yesterday, we were watching um, David Blaine, who was a great magician of the day, um, and a bunch of others who are able to take natural things and make them look unnatural. He was able to do incredible work. Like, for example, rabbits out of hats, right? Or um, making things disappear, taking a a quarter and putting a cigarette all the way through it. Um, Making himself levitate. This is called magic. Magic, by definition, is illusion. It's a trick in the eye. Miracle, on the other hand, is an act of God that transcends the laws of nature. There's a difference between miracle and magic. Was Jesus a magician, like Sigmund Freud said? Was he a charlatan? Is he able to do these things? How can I believe it? The fact that he doubted led him to truth. Immanuel Kant, one of the great philosophers ever, greatest philosopher ever lived, said the following. Laziness and cowardness are the reasons why a large part of mankind remain minors all their lives, long after nature has freed them from external guidance. They are the reason why it's so easy for others to set themselves up as their guardians. It is comfortable to be a minor if I have a book who thinks for me, a pastor who acts as my conscience, a physician who prescribes my diet, and so on. I have no need to exert myself. I have no need to think. I can pay somebody else to do the undesirable business for me. Beware of having everyone do everything for you. At that point, they'll even do your life for you. Thomas needed evidence. He didn't want to be one of those. He needed something more. Is it okay to doubt? Absolutely. Anyone who's worth their salt asks questions. All the great thinkers, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, even Christ himself asked questions on the cross. My God, my God, why? It is okay to ask questions. It's okay to doubt. Let me just put that for you. Because doubt leads to genuine faith. Thomas doubted. The problem is, we have set up a generation where more people are leaving the faith than any time in history. Because according to the Pew Research Studies, 70% of people who are raised outside the church are less likely to consider the claims of the scriptures than four generations combined before them. The Next Generation Project, the General Survey of Religion, the University of Chicago National Religion Opinion Survey, the National Study of Youth and Religion Culture in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, did analysis on why people leave faith. And listen to the result. I don't feel I can ask my most pressing life questions. Unresolved doubts are the key factor of many people leaving. Research strongly indicates the neglect of apologetics in the American church is a root cause of the decline of American Christianity. What do I mean by apologetics? It's okay to ask questions. If you are in an environment here with your wonderful pastor, where you're free to ask your duff, tough questions. It's okay. Don't run away. Because what are you going to run to? Thomas needed evidence. He needed to touch Christ. Which leads me to point number two. He needed absolute certainty. And I'm telling you, point number two is absolute certainty is absurd. It is impossible. You can't possibly know everything about anything. 
The only one who can know that is one who's omniscient, and that would be God. Take the botanist who studies botany all his life. He can't possibly know all the deep structures of photosynthesis and how that works with the photoreceptors and the plants and the eyes. And the deep details of it, even he doesn't know. Even the physicist or the special theologian or the psychologist who psychologizes animal, um, human behavior. There's a point where he says, I don't know. I have a friend who's dying of a debilitating disease in a hospital. Doctors can't figure out what it is. All the great medical research is, there's things that we are limited to. Absolute certainty is absurd. Because, get this guys, the position that says, I can only believe that which is physical, is itself logically a logical contradiction. So one day a student came to my office, and we were talking philosophy and going back and forth, and he told me, Professor, I can't believe all this stuff. It's, I can't test it, touch it, taste it, can't feel it. I can't believe it. Unless it's physical, it must be nothing more than poetry. I told him, you don't really believe that. He said, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, I do. No, I, I, I think you don't. So we went back and forth. So what do you mean? That's an important question, to ask questions. The very thought, I don't believe anything that's not physical, is itself not physical. It's a structural consciousness. That's not physical. The very position that says only that which can be verified empirically is itself unverifiable empirically, which is a school of thought called logical positivism, by the way. We need to think and question our doubts. Absolute certainty is absurd. Let's continue in the passage. Verse 26. I love this. It says, Eight days later, his disciples were met again inside and Thomas was with them. Eight days God let him sit with his doubts. Eight long, excruciating days he didn't give him an answer. Sometimes God does not give us an answer right away. Sometimes he lets us wait. Eight minutes, eight days, eight years, 80 years? What are you doing, God? He knows what he's doing. Some of us are not ready for the answer he'll give us. We need to be ready for it. And that is the divine, omnipotent plan of God. He reveals it to you when you're ready. Thomas wasn't ready. Eight days later, apparently he was, because guess who showed up? Jesus. Although the doors were locked, oh, back up a little bit, and Thomas was with them. This is an important point. This is point number three, by the way. Um, if you doubt, you're in good company, because Thomas was with them. His disciples didn't shun him away. They didn't kick him out. Look at that doubter. How dare you? You doubt your faith? What's the matter with you? I have a friend of mine who's telling me about some people in the... Um, who were pushing away a friend of theirs in their, in their Muslim, Muslim community who dared to stand up and doubt what was written in the Quran publicly. He's not only endangered his community, his family, but also his life in a particular community. There are some Muslim communities that are more open, but the structure of many of them don't allow it. And Muslims are not the only ones. There are many Christian communities that don't allow doubt. I'm telling you, in this place, you're allowed it. The disciples let him. You notice, eight days, he was still with them. He was among them, the doubter. It's okay. You're in good company if you doubt, because the vast majority of great thinkers also do. Now, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you, or Shalom, in Hebrew, or Salamat, in Arabic, very similar in Aramaic. And then he said to Thomas, without anybody saying anything to him, Thomas, 
Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What does it mean to believe? You can't force yourself to believe something you know ain't true. Can you? If I were to tell you in downtown Chicago is the Eiffel Tower, believe it and I'll pay you. Well, you can believe it all you want. You can't make yourself believe something that's false. Or believe that Trump is impeached. That hasn't happened yet. But I don't know if it will be. <laughs> no matter what you believe about it, it's not going to change whether he's impeached or not, right? If I tell you you have a wife in Uganda, okay, I have a wife in Uganda. I can't believe it because I know it's not true. So what did Jesus mean, believe? Here I am. Touch me. Guys, I have seen people with the evidence presented right in front of their faces. And I've talked to police officers who've presented hardcore evidence. And people will look at the evidence and say, no, I don't believe it. He didn't do it. It's the evidence. We have the fingerprint evidence. We have the video evidence. We have his testimony. And the person will still look you in the eye and say, he didn't do it. People are very interesting lot, aren't we? Sometimes when the evidence is presented to us, we still won't believe it. Jesus is telling Thomas, stop it. Believe. Now when you say believe in Scripture, it's more of a form of trust and assurance. Um, this is what faith is about. It's, um, it's taking a hand and trusting. This is what Jesus is telling Thomas. Take my hand. Trust me. There was a little boy in the Himalayan mountains. He saw a group of scientists working very hard on the side of a cliff with helicopters and military operation. And he got close. And he was wondering, what's going on? And he got to know the scientists. He said they were searching for a specific type of plant that has very powerful medicinal properties. And it's located near a cliff deep down on the side. The problem is they all their equipment. They couldn't get down there without damaging the structure of the area. So they looked at the boy and said, hey, why can't we take you, wrap something around you very tightly, and lower you down, and you can take it for us? The boy said, yes, of course. But wait. So he disappears. A few hours later, he shows up with an older man. He said, this man is my father. I'll go down as long as he holds the rope. What that boy is saying is, I trust him. This is what Jesus is telling Thomas. Believe me. Trust me. I'm him. I died. I came back. Dead men don't rise unless a miracle happens. I am not magic. I am the very incarnation of the being who you worship. How do we know that? Because the very next thing Thomas says to him is in Greek, O mau kurios, o theos mau, my Lord and my God. Jehovah's Witnesses, I love them. They don't believe that. Muslims, love them too. They don't believe that either. Hindus, nope. Sikhs, nope. Every major religion denies it. I teach world religions. They deny that Jesus is the very incarnation of the creator of the universe. They'll say he's a great teacher. Oh yeah, great moral teacher, great prophet. Oh yeah, nice guy. Some very being of God on earth, the incarnation and avatar of the Almighty? No. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He worshipped him. Jesus is God in the flesh. Christianity has held that as a centerpiece of its ideological dogmatism for the last 2,000 years. Yes, we have people who disagree with the assertion, but basically the entire New Testament asserts that claim over and over and over again. And here is the declaration from Thomas himself. Listen to these wonderful words from Peter Kreeft of Boston College. 
He says, let's take a step back. We begin with a mystery, not just of suffering, but of suffering with a world supposedly created by a loving God. By the way, this is his book called Making Sense Out of Suffering. Making Sense Out of Suffering by Peter Kreeft. Powerful book. How do we get God off the hook? God's answer is Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus is not God off the hook, but God on the hook. That's why the doctrine of the divinity of Christ is critical. If that is not God there on the cross, but only a good man, then God is not on the hook, on the cross, in our suffering. If that God is not on the hook, then he is not off the hook. How could he sit there and ignore our tears? There is, as we saw, one good reason for not believing in God. Evil. And God has himself answered this objection, not in words, but in deeds, in tears. Jesus is the tears of God. Jesus said to him, moving on in the passage, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. Thomas doubted the very testimony of his brothers, the ones who were given, willing to give their lives, and the vast majority of them did. Jesus was, in a way, rebuking Thomas. In one way, he was commending him because he showed him himself. There is a good part of doubt which leads you to genuine faith. But if you keep doubting to doubt so you can doubt, your skepticism may slowly become cynicism. And that's dangerous. Don't let your skepticism become cynicism. Cynicism is when you deny not only what you know, but what anybody else says they know. Say, so, ah, forget it all. Let's just go get another beer. How's that going to help? Jesus is not saying dismissing evidence there. Why? Because the entire chapter is about him showing evidence, which is himself, rising from the dead, which is the Easter story, which sets him apart from every major religious leader in the world. But it seems like he's saying that, like dismissing evidence. No, we have to look at the very next verse. So one of my uh, philosophy, actually it's a theology professor at Trinity, made this point to me. He said, Khaldun, never forget the three rules of interpreting any text. Get these texts, guys. Know these rules. Never forget this. First rule is context. The second rule is context. The third rule is context. <laughs> when you look at a word, you don't just look at the word. You look at the sentence. You don't just look at the sentence. You look at the paragraph. You don't look at the paragraph. You look at the structure of the book. You look at the book, you look at the one who wrote the book. You look at the sociological, geopolitical situation of that person. You look at the society around it. Everything is in context. The only one who stands outside of any context is God himself. All of us are contingent beings. The next verse says the answer to that question, whether Jesus really cared about evidence. Now Jesus, verse 30, did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. What are signs? Signs are miracles. Uh, signs are evidences for faith. So he's talking about that. But these are written. Why are they written? What is written? These, which is evidences of Christ being the very incarnation of God on earth. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ that is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. Or Messiah in Hebrew. The Son of God or God the Son. So that by believing in him you may have life in his name. True life is in his name. 
Why is, why is this whole book even written? John says, so that the evidences I have witnessed with my eyes and my brothers have given their life for, you will believe. According to tradition, Tom went to India, the land of over 330 million gods, and gave his life serving there. His tomb is still located there. Thomas believed. He asked questions. He was not afraid of his doubts. In summary, the three points I gave you. One, doubt can lead to genuine faith. Two, absolute certainty is absurd. Three, if you doubt, you're in good company. And number four, believe that you may understand. Believe that you may understand. The modern epistemological tradition or the tradition of Western thinking says, no, 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 I have to first understand and then I'll believe. Augustine and the great thinkers of the past said, actually, it's the reverse. In order for you to under- believe anything, you have to first understand it. But in order for you to understand it, you first have to believe. You have to believe in logic. You have to believe in language. You have to believe in structure of thought. All these things are presupposed before a word even comes out of your mouth. There's a structure you're taking for granted that all this actually works. And that there is one who makes sure it works, the very being who set up everything in the beginning. So for you to believe and really understand what Christ is saying, first take his hand, trust him, and slowly things will start elucidating to you in remarkable ways. The doubt in my mind may be powerful. I'll search it to the ground. Research it. I've researched many things I thought were just going to damn my faith. And I realized, no, I just didn't understand it properly. Whether it's manuscript evidence, the deity of Christ, the silence of God. Which leads me to conclude with this. Why is God so silent then that makes us doubt so much? Why? Last week, I finished reading a book that changed my thinking on this. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Till We Have Faces. I strongly recommend it to you. It's one of his off-sided, unknown little books. In that book, it's a retelling of the ancient story of Psyche. It is set in Greek mythology. A character named Orel, one of the three sisters born to a king with no sons. You see, this sister's face was deformed in such a way where she was constantly called ugly before her brothers and sisters or her sisters and the people around her. At one point, her sister Psyche was so incredibly beautiful as she emerged from her teen years that even the Aphrodite, the goddess of love, condemned her to die because of her jealousy. So they condemned her to be taken from the palace and thrown out into the forest and to be given to a beast as his bride. Oriel comes to the king and says, take me instead. Because when she was little, Oriel became like a mother to her because her mother died. She loved her. And the king took Oriel's hand walked her across the palace to a gigantic mirror and said, do you want me to give that to the gods? Talk about not affirming your children. That's terrible. She was crushed. Her whole life had been misery after misery. And seeing her sister taken away from her, the one she loved deeper than anyone else. Toward the end of the novel, Oriel's given a chance to address the gods. And she shows up with a long list of complaints. And she begins to rattle them off. And Lewis says in the book, hours begin to move as the heavens were silent. As she began to go on and on about her complaints. 
As she finished, there was silence in the heavens. And she waited for the God to respond. And there was no response. Silence. Oriel goes back, and as she ages, she begins to realize why the God, above all the gods, never answered her. This is brilliant in Lewis' style. This is the reason God did not give me an answer. is because he is the answer. All questions dilated in front of his face. This is what Job said when he saw him. This is why Thomas fell on his face in front of him. Peter said, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Moses was brave enough to say, show me your face, O oh God. And God's answer was, if you see me, you will die. You're not ready. Trust him in your doubts. Because he will give you something better than your answers. He'll give you himself. And from that, spend true life. Thank you. So... Uh...